0: It's time for cubicle insanity. I've got Kim here with me and I'm Tammy. We're back together again to talk or rant a little about that which we love called corporate America. Let's get into our latest cubicle insanity. A topic that comes up frequently, Kim, is related to talent acquisition and considering a diverse slate of candidates. Today, we're gonna delve into a specific group that many companies look for avenues to find to make sure they're including in their candidate slate our active military, and our veterans. So we have a special guest that we've invited to share his insight and expertise and personal experiences. So Kim, I'll let you have the privilege of introducing our guest. Thanks, Tammy. So I have the honor
1: to introduce Army Retired Lieutenant Colonel Ken Patterson. Ken served 24 years in the Army. He's had two tours in Iraq. During his service, he earned his undergrad and his MBA. He's currently married with two children. Funny story about him getting married to his current wife. You know, those military guys that, you know, you think everything is so planned out. Right. He met his wife, he knew his wife from high school, if I'm correct. Met up in Vegas for a date and 13 hours later was married. Is that correct? Okay. That's correct. Wow. So
2: 16 years ago.
1: All right. And the only knock I have for about Ken is he's a Bears and a Chicago Cubs. Oh my gosh. So the You didn't tell me this before, (laughs) Ken. The fact that we're even talking is a rare thing. Go Cardinals. Okay. So Ken, thank you for joining us today. It is our privilege. Thank you for your service. And we want to have a chat with you about the kind of compare and contrast uh, your military life to corporate America.
2: Super. Okay. Thank you so much for the for the kind introduction. Uh, and thanks for having me. I'm honored. I'm honored to be here. Always happy to talk about the value of a veteran.
1: Thank you. So we have a few questions, a few scripted questions. But, the, you know, the kind of premise of our podcast is cubicle insanity. So is there any insanity in that goes on in the military
2: so there's a there's a ton of insanity. most of it involves explosives and uh, <laughs> and things like that. Uh, but I do have a, a a cubicle story that stands out. Um, stationed in Hawaii, I had quite a few uh, Department of Defense civilians that worked for me and they they resided in cubicles in the office space and we had a a gentleman that Openly and and without hiding it, hated people, uh, and so he had a door custom made that he installed on his cubicle <laughs> that he could close so that people could not oh my see gosh. him. And, uh, and and I didn't know that much about him, so I, I knocked on his door and uh, asked permission to enter his cubicle. And as we talked, I was like, it seems funny that you have a door in your cubicle. He said, that's intentional. I was like, but it seems like you're shutting yourself off and we're supposed to be a team. You know, do, do you see that? He goes, oh yeah, that's intentional. He's like, I hate people. And, <laughs> and really he did. And so the door was better for him. <laughs>
1: So hopefully this person wasn't like a HR type of role.
2: He was a computer guy. Okay. And (laughs) and and said he likes computers better than people. All right. Yeah. That makes (laughs) sense. That's okay. Yeah.
0: All (laughs) right. All right. (laughs) And honestly, we've all known those people who maybe should have had those doors or were just like that, who they just would prefer to be left alone in their cubicle. Might be a
2: good business to start a cubicle door business.
0: Oh,
1: there you go. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, more and more companies with the the environment like Google is trying to set up like the open environment. I'm not sure how long that business would be in business. Maybe not. <laughs> so, all right, let's uh, let's kind of get into it with our questions. So, Ken, again, you know, you've had a long distinguished um, service. The one thing I did fail to mention is that you're a recipient of the Bronze Star. So, mm. thankfully, no Purple Hearts.
2: No Purple Hearts. All right. We call that the enemy marksmanship badge.
1: All right. I wanted to get that in there because I, I think that that's truly amazing. Um. All right. So, let's get into it. So, after you graduated high school, why did you go into the military versus, say, going to college and then after college, hopefully right into corporate America or, you know, working after college?
2: Sure. So, uh, so truthfully, prior to high school graduation, my academic career uh, preceding that, I, uh, if they diagnosed at the time for ADHD, then in the early 80s, I probably would have been diagnosed with that. Um, I was very unfocused. Uh, I did not like school. It was very tough for me. Um, I didn't get stellar grades because I had other priorities, uh, athletics and things of that nature. Um, and so the military seemed like a natural, uh, a natural fit for me because it allowed me to have a adrenaline kind of packed life. Um, and that's what I thrived on. That's what motivated me was things involving an adrenaline rush, um, and so so I always knew that if I wanted to do something big in my life, I would need college, but I didn't feel like I was ready uh, for college. So and my dad has always been my greatest mentor uh, in my life and he's always seen things for my best interest and not necessarily for what he wanted for me. Um, and so we talked and I told him that I thought maybe the military was better. Um, and so he encouraged me. So he drove me to the recruiting station at 17 and I enlisted in the infantry and off I went. Wow.
0: Do you have a history of military in your family, or that was just something that was personal for you?
2: All of all of my family has served. Nobody's ever served uh, as a career. The, most of them just did one enlistment. I have uncles that were in Korea, World War okay. II, uh, Vietnam. So my my whole family has a long history of service, uh, so it felt natural. Um, you know, My dad was in the Army during the Vietnam era and very proud of his service. Uh, but nobody had ever stayed for a career. And honestly, I didn't know I was going to either. I just finally woke up one day and I had 24 years <laughs> in. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, How did that, that went fast, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a lot of us that are in corporate America. You get, you know, you see people with the, the service anniversary awards, like 15, 25, then 40 years. And they're like, yeah, it just seems like yesterday I kind of started. How did that happen? So, understandable. Good. So... Another thing, Ken, that is curiosity is, you know, what are the three lessons, good or bad, that you learned in the military, that as you are now working in corporate America, that you stay with you either to do or not do?
2: Sure. So uh so that's a great question. Um number one for me is always leadership. Um the the military values leadership above everything. Uh we drive leadership responsibility down to some of the very lowest levels uh, in the organization, um, decision making authority, things of that nature. So leadership to me is paramount um, and and making sure no matter what level you are in corporate America or in the military, that you're leading at the biggest level that you can based on your position. Um, don't be afraid to make decisions, uh, things of that nature. Um, the second one is work ethic, right? Just uh, work hard i've I've always said uh, throughout my career that i 'm probably never the smartest guy in the room, but I am the hardest working guy in the room um, and so i've always prided myself on I will work as hard as I need to work to be the best um, you know and so so work ethic is a big deal. it certainly is in the military, and I think that corporate America demands it uh, the 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 demands in corporate america are significant and if you can't afford for somebody to be off their A game um and so uh, so i would say work ethic and uh and the the other uh big lesson is don't get kind of hamstrung by the thought that i have to wait till i have 100% of the information to make a decision um, we have a saying in the military that that is actually a real saying that 80% of the information today is better than 100% of the information tomorrow And so get as much information as you can get. Make a decision and start executing. And if you have to adjust based on follow-on information down the road, that's okay. But there's so many people that I see that can't make a decision. And then what ends up happening while they're waiting for the information is they miss the opportunity.
1: Yeah, analysis by paralysis.
2: Correct. Yeah, exactly.
1: or paralysis by analysis, I guess, is the correct way to say it. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, in, you know, of course, corporate America, the 80-20 rule applies, and I think, you know, more and more people, I think, in the higher up you go, I think you try to get more and more comfortable with, like, 70-30% of the information, maybe 50-50, because you've got experience and maybe better gut instincts uh, to kind of guide you as well, plus trusting the folks below you. Yeah.
0: Tammy, you think? True, yeah. Yeah, yeah Um. I, uh there's a, another saying, uh, don't let perfection get in the way of progress.
2: Yes, perfect. I love that. Yep.
0: yep. Yeah. And a lot of people do wait for that perfection because they don't want to be wrong or they don't want yeah. to look silly or stupid or anything. Yeah. So they want to make sure that they're making the right decision instead of just taking what they have and making that decision.
2: What I see oftentimes too, or at least my perception, is that you have people that are afraid they're going to lose their job if they make a bad decision. So sometimes in their mind, making no decision is better than making a bad decision. Um, and that fear, uh, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have that same fear in the military. I mean, you have soldiers' lives at, in your hands, so you do try to make the best decisions, but we have a lot of risk mitigation behind it um, to help us cover that. But no decision is the worst thing in the military because uh, in the end, soldiers will die with no decision. So we don't have that same fear of, oh, I might get fired. Um, you know, but I see that a little bit in corporate America, and, and it goes to your point of you know the more experience you have, the more comfortable you are making those decisions with less information. But I think if the more we can push that down uh, within the organization, the the faster our organizations are going to move.
1: Any uh, tips that you've coached newer employees under your leadership or under your management? Uh, scope of responsibilities any tips that you've shared with them to get more comfortable with making decisions with the 80 percent
2: so yeah and it's hard to learn on your own right it's hard to learn kind of in a bubble or in a vacuum how to make fast decisions so i always try to connect uh, the people that i'm mentoring with another mentor beyond myself or or if they come to me but check yourself right if if there's a decision that needs to be made and you have a little bit of the information but you're not comfortable making a decision check with somebody that has more experience or more seniority that might be able to to tell you or confirm you have enough to make a decision go make the decision move out we'll talk later if there's if there's more information that comes available that causes us to adjust our direction but but if they, if they go and they check with people that have that experience level or the comfort level, then, then they start making decisions faster and it tends to then become a habit. They get more comfortable making their own decisions um, or they learn how to make good decisions through that mentor. So I think mentorship is absolutely critical uh, when it comes to comfort level of making decisions, um, especially with a, a potential gap in information. Um, and so that's, One of my focuses, uh, you know, with anybody that I'm working with, is seek and find a mentor that you can trust.
1: Do you think that everybody should have a mentor, or you think um, it should be selected individual? Not, I don't mean like just only a few people should have them. Um, I'm trying to ask like more about how you line up employees with mentors.
2: That's a really tough one. so so I mentor I, I would guess somewhere between twenty and twenty-two people. Um somewhere around there. I'm pretty selective.
1: The average being
2: twenty-one. <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> not ages. <laughs> um, I'm pretty selective because I don't I want my time to be valuable. Um and I don't yeah. I don't want to waste time trying to teach somebody that they're that they can be good. I want to take somebody that Feels like they're good but wants to be great. Um, Some people, and this is the hard truth, right? And sometimes we have a hard time telling the hard truth. Some people are not mentorable, right? Some people are too hard-headed, too set in their ways. They already think that they're awesome and they don't have a a self-awareness where they think that they can learn from somebody else and they don't have a hunger to learn from somebody else. So what I look for in a In personality characteristics is somebody that that is already good wants to be great and and feels like they can learn from other people around them and then that to me is somebody that's going to be receptive to my mentorship because i don't want to fight to force my mentorship down somebody's throat so i think as an organization you have to make you kind of have to have that assessment of is this person able to be mentored if they are then absolutely give them a mentor because you never know what you know, new employee or entry-level employee is eventually going to blossom into a tremendous leader with the right mentorship around them.
1: Yeah, true. Okay. Thanks. All right. So what about, um, you know, as you transition, as you started to transition out of the military, first off, kind of what, what mental process do you go through to get yourself ready to transition out? And then you know, as you transition out from the military, where, I'm going to stereotype, as civilians, we think, you know, the military is very structured, um, and yet sometimes in corporate America, it's very nebulous. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you started the transition out. How did you think about what is it I want to go do when I get out of the military? Because if you were have a specialty of, like, Driving t- tanks, for example, how do you translate that into something that's applicable for corporate America? Because I hear that quite often like fr- when I interview veterans like well you know I did you know I, I was in charge of ordinance okay, so how does that translate to corporate America And then you get this blank look so how did you start thinking about that as you made the transition and then also how do you how did you start thinking about the structure and navigating?
2: Right, so, so one of the military skills that we learn as officers is preparation is everything. You cannot over-prepare. Um, so we prepare a tremendous amount. It's, the plan doesn't matter, uh, but planning matters. And so, uh, you know, we, we also often say the plan is only, is only good until the battle starts, and then the whole plan changes. But having planned, uh, gone through a planning process, that's what is important. That's where you evaluate strengths and weaknesses and capabilities and enablers and support functions. Having all of that information allows you to then adjust your plan as you go. Um, I actually started planning very intentionally about one year out um, in the military when you submit your retirement packet. Uh, the day that it's approved, you you your last day in the military is one year later. So you actually have a, a fairly substantial amount of time. That's in a retirement. Resigning before retirement, uh, time is a little bit different uh, But in retirement, I had one year so when I submitted my retirement packet and the army approved it That's the day I started planning. Uh, I got online. I started doing research. Uh, there was a website called the ladders com uh, which has thousands and thousands of white papers on how to write a resume how to interview how to negotiate salaries all and I just started voraciously reading and studying and taking notes and preparing myself or that I had no clue what I wanted to do, um, but I knew I needed to be in an organization that did something bigger than just my effort. Um, I felt like that's what the army was all about. And so for me, it was not necessarily what I did, it was where I did it, Um, and being in an organization that I could be proud of what they were doing. Um, And so so from a structured environment to a nebulous environment, that's that's a challenge that I think all veterans, or most veterans, I should say, uh, can be successful at if they have the right mindset, because the the biggest kind of value of a veteran, I think, is a, what I call adaptive leadership. The ability to adapt your leadership style to varying environments, uh, you know, in, in my career, I have led Polish soldiers, I've led Italian soldiers, I've led Canadian soldiers, I've led Marines, I've led Navy, Air Force, uh, as well as my own Army soldiers. All of, those, uh, all of those presented different leadership styles. And so you have to be able to adjust and, f- and flex your leadership. And so moving from a very structured military environment, which it is, you know exactly who's given the orders, you know who's executing the orders, you know who to go to for help, You know, all of those all of those structures exist, and they don't in corporate America. But we're very resourceful. We are very good at problem solving, and we're very good at being adaptable. And so, if you can translate that, and you talked about, you know, you mentioned driving a tank or ordnance, right, which is explosives. I would say I was able to operate very complex machinery in in the most austere environments possible, or able to maintain accountability over X millions of dollars of, of equipment in a very highly regulated environment, right, from, from an ordinance right. perspective. So right. it's a matter of taking that specific skill and thinking outside the box to how does that skill, what's really the core values of that skill and how, does, how would it apply in corporate America?
1: Is there, as you begin to transition out and write your resume, is there somebody that helps you translate some of those um, very specific military words like ordinance or things like that to kind of help civilians understand that and understand a um, military resume?
2: So so there is an organization in the military. It's a process we go through called ACAP, um, and it's, it's a transition program. It's been five years, so I can't tell you right off the top of my head what ACAP stands for. Um, but it is a formal process that every soldier getting out of the military goes through where they have resume services. Uh, I would argue that they're probably not the best. Uh, they're they're not the highest paid and, and they're doing a ton of resumes every day. Um, the advice that I would give is reach out, get on LinkedIn, uh, start to build a network, try to find some HR professionals that you can connect with from anywhere um, and, and ask for help, uh, you know. Um, My HR professional uh, in in my role has been extraordinarily helpful helping but working with them and it was probably a half hour or maybe an hour of time to just help them understand how to do those translations. So I think that there are tons of people that will help. It's a matter of asking for the help.
0: Okay, good. I'm going to follow that up, Kim. Are there questions... So when you're going through that interview process and you're the one who's having to do that translation because a lot of... folks in corporate america like me and kim we don't necessarily know all of the lingo um, or what it means or how it translates so what are what are the things that you would try to get across or what are the questions that you wish that you were asked during that whole interview process to make sure that you were painting the picture of what your skills are Um, a lot of times when uh hiring managers or hr they're interviewing for a job they're looking for a specific skill. They want to know, oh, you've done this before or you've done something similar and this is kind of a growth path for you. So, how what do you wish they were asking or or what were the words that you used to help them understand that maybe you didn't do that exact thing, but the potential is there.
2: Yeah, so I think it's just, you know, going two or three layers deep in the questions and and you have HR professionals that are skilled at that and then you have HR professionals that will just say, "What did you do?" Right? right? And so uh, it depends on the level of seniority. I think of the veteran. Uh, the lower enlisted veterans may just say, "I, I managed ordnance, right?" And an ordnance officer with six years in might say, "Well, I, I managed X millions of dollars worth of equipment. You know, we went to combat. I was in Iraq. It was a it was a very austere environment. You know, it's very highly regulated. So it's it's just digging in and more finding getting." beyond what did they do to what was their responsibility right so uh, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a bridge to get across when you talk about this was my job description to this is actually what i was responsible for doing right um you know uh, when you get into that uh you know i helped a i helped a guy uh, redo his resume that was a medevac uh, worked on a medevac and that's that was his answer to the question is i i don't know i just got on a helicopter and it worked on a medevac i'm like okay but let's dig into that i mean Every time you had a job to do when you were in Iraq, every time you got called out, it was literally the highest level of intensity that you could ever imagine, right? He's like, Well, yeah. I mean, we were getting in gunfights to save these guys. I'm like, Okay, let's talk. You know, you were, you were, you know, in a very high intensity environment. You were very detail oriented in what you did. There was a, a process, a checklist you had to follow, right? And he's like, Yes. And so it's just kind of walking through. You know, and a lot of times I think if HR professionals can connect, every big corporation has veterans in it. Most of them have veteran organizations that exist solely to help HR uh, professionals do this kind of thing. I would encourage HR professionals to reach out and find one or two of those veteran partners that can help. I've had HR professionals uh, at my organization forward me resumes and say, hey, we're considering this guy, but I'm not sure how to to translate this whole resume can you read through it and let's have a conversation right um, and I will do that happily and and we have actually found multiple uh, really really strong assets for the for the organization because we we were able to work together veteran veteran groups NHR groups to uh, to properly translate those responsibilities right so
0: yeah I think that's tough
1: don't you Kim it is and I've uh, personally trying to help uh, um, soldier that has spent four years in the Air Force and he's come out and he's trying to make that transition and to your point Ken is you know I'm like so tell me what you what you did and he's like well you know I I did X okay well tell me a little bit more about that and he's trying to figure out like how to use non-military words Mm -hmm. and he's struggling whereas if I talk to somebody um, this other person I've talked to who happens to be a retired lieutenant colonel of the Marines and I say, well, you know, what did you do? And it's just like, hey, you know, I managed a team of six and we had scope of responsibility for X. And it sounded like he was talking about and using the words of corporate America. Right. So it's, it, it is interesting based upon the level of experience, how they can translate what they do um, to, to a discussion with an HR.
2: And how it's applicable
1: yeah right right yeah good okay can thinking about you know as you've been in out of the military now for a few years you've been in corporate America for a few years what would you say is the biggest disconnect of you know like we civilians have a perception of the military guessing the military has a perception of corporate America so now you've been out a few years, you're navigating corporate America, what was either the biggest disconnect or the biggest aha for you uh, during this time?
2: Um, I think the biggest the biggest disconnect, and, and I, I would argue that with quite a few people in my current organization, I, this reputation exists, and I, I literally have never done anything to have this reputation, but that the military is just extraordinarily tough leadership that, that you know, everybody's a drill surgeon. We all yell at our soldiers and, uh, you know, we use a ton of profanity and there's no flexibility. And, and frankly, that's not true. We tend in the military to call that toxic leadership and we try to remove that. Um, uh, we are, we have high standards and we're very tough on those standards and we enforce those standards. But I would argue that, that the military is a, more the most effective leadership in the military leads through compassion and understanding versus just suck it up. We use the word suck it up a lot in the, in the military because sometimes we don't have a choice. Um, but but you can find very understanding and caring leaders that are still that are still tough and and have set high standards, and so uh, so there's a certain amount of flexibility there. Uh, from the military to corporate America, um. I think that uh, I think the misnomer is that they don't care about leadership as much as we do. Um, You know, when I was leaving the army, and and my my group of of peers and mentors uh, found out where I was going to interview for, the comment that a lot of them said was, "Make sure you bring your body armor with you, uh, because because they're going to shoot you in the chest or stab you in the back." Um, So I was nervous coming in, and I was, I was apprehensive about making strong connections because I didn't know what the trust levels were going to be like, um, I, was, I was very, very quickly surprised, happily, that the same amount of trust exists in corporate America as it does in the military. It's a little bit different. I'm not trusting necessarily with my life. But uh, it goes to your point, Kim, about a more nebulous organization that without trust, it's it's very difficult to get the mission done. Um, you know, I have seen times when when the greater team that I'm a part of uh, is working very independently, and then when cri- a crisis happens, I have seen people completely shut down what they're doing for themselves, and everybody pulls together around that crisis to get to work through it, and and that's what we expect from our our military teams and organizations. So so the the biggest disconnect i think uh you know i've given you the individuals but from a holistic perspective is it's very much the same Mm -hmm. uh it's 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 very mission oriented or very task oriented or very goal oriented and and a very effective team in corporate america will work very much the same as a very effective team in the military they will they will get their missions done on their own and when there's a crisis they will all band together kind of like brothers or sisters and they will execute in support of each other to work through that crisis and then move back out to their individual tasks and and to me I love it I thought that I would miss the brotherhood of the military tremendously and I have found that I miss the people of in the military but the brotherhood still existed
1: What, um, what have you learned in corporate America? And maybe it's a little bit of the same question that you didn't know or anticipate.
2: Okay, so this is, this is going to be a, a very transparent answer. Um, that there are times in the military when the mission has to come first but for the most part people are always first because we can't frankly we we believe that you can't ever accomplish a mission without boots on the ground right without people um and what i find in corporate america is oftentimes profit is number 1 and and oftentimes people are a second thought um and i think that that's uh I think that that's just the nature of it. I think it's everywhere. I don't think it's in any specific uh, part of corporate America. I think that uh, companies are businesses and they run like businesses. Uh, the military's not. Profit we don't have a profit number. Uh you know, I mean, we have a a mission and we have to accomplish that mission. And so it changes the dynamics of of the requirements on the leadership uh, because if you're not returning the profit, everybody's out of a job, right? So So maybe in a sense, worrying about profit is trying to take care of the people, but oftentimes you kind of have to search for that a little bit. Um, And it's not as readily apparent that people are the number one concern. Um,
0: I agree. And I think that we have a hard time in corporate America at all kinds of levels. And it starts at the top, I think, communicating that. Profit is a, is a number, especially a public company, you know, it's a number we have to meet and we have to be very serious about it, but still communicating that you're important as an employee and we know that we need you to make these numbers happen, but we have trouble communicating it, I think True. is where it, where it happens. And if at the top level, they're not good at it, then I think that does trickle down to, you know, lower level managers. They don't know how to communicate to their team or their department that you're really important, what you do is important, but... Because of these other things, we have to, to your to your point about being adaptive with your plans, we might have to just change our plan a little bit because we need to make sure that as as a whole company we're meeting this where it usually comes down as, you know, freeze on all jobs. We need to let go of some people, we need to save money, we need to and it comes down more about dollars instead of people.
2: Right. And it's 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 really, you know, my HR, my HR representative has been tremendously valuable to me in helping me figure out how to message that properly to my team Uh, and we've had very intentional conversations about some of the challenges uh, in the business and how do i message this decision or this action to my team to keep them motivated and keep them working and striving towards the goal in spite of the challenge Uh, and so I think HR plays such a vital role, and, and it really is a cultural thing, right? It's the culture of the company, and, and, and if you can shift the culture to where the, the people understand, hey, profit is, profit is king because we're a publicly held company, yep. but we matter. We're important that they care about us. Uh, as long as they feel that way, you know, I, I think that everything kind of falls into place then. Yep. But sometimes it's challenging to, to come up with the right message.
0: Yep, exactly. I completely agree. I love it. It's, it's a tough message, and you know it, it comes into the culture and the core values, and you know making sure everybody feels part of mm-hmm. that bigger goal it
2: has some ownership.
0: Yeah, exactly. Good. All right. All right. Next question,
1: Ken, is in the military. Again, we're going off of stereotypes is um there's often a direct order or command given the troops line up and go execute not in a robotic way but again theoretically stereotypically line up and go execute in corporate america when there's a decision or an initiative that needs to be rolled out we get in a conference room and we talk about it and Typically, the most senior manager says, "Okay, is everybody in agreement?" You know, everybody's kind of politely, quietly nodding their head, like, "Mm "Mm-hmm, yep, all in agreement." And then, but sometimes, if you've got a good team in the in that meeting, there'll be some constructive debate or uh, conflict of what needs to be rolled out. At the end of it, the manager always says, "Okay, when we walk out of this room." I want everybody to be on board, and we need to go implement X, right? In the military, does this occur like we have seen in corporate America, where you go out of the room, out of that conference room, where everybody's kind of politely nodded like, yeah, we're on board. Okay, we'll go execute. And then you connect with your buddy from the team, and okay, I can't believe we're going to do this, blah, blah, blah. Then the back-channeling starts. It's maybe kind of half-assed implemented at some point by some people. It's fully implemented by others and just blatantly ignored by others. Uh, <laughs> I've never just blatantly ignored something. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> or let's just be clear about that one. <laughs> but, you know, does, that, does the same thing happen in the military? And if, yes, how is it dealt with versus how did you – have you seen it in your experience so far in corporate America, and how have you dealt with it as a senior leader?
2: yep so uh, so in the military, um, I would argue that it depends on two things. it depends on how what level of command uh, so lower level of command versus higher level of command um, and individual style of leadership. Um, so as orders and we'll use combat as an example because that is the the most uh, striking example of when we give an order, it must be followed. Um, we would get, for example, from our higher headquarters an order to uh, to go get a high value target, right? So one of the one of the guys in the deck of cards, the Saddam deck sure. of cards, uh, and we would get a location for that uh, high value target, and then we would get a list of enablers. We would have helicopter support or artillery support or whatever. The rest is up to up to me to plan um i would tell you that i would never plan a mission like that in in my truck by myself i would always pull my combat leaders in because i have i had at that time two years of combat experience but if i brought my four highest ranking guys in we now had 22 years of combat experience and we've you've seen a lot more things go good and a lot more things gone go bad and you start to brainstorm through how are we going to do this here's a map Here's what it looks like. What road are we going to come in on? What road are we going to leave on? Where do we want to have our support? Uh, things of that nature. And so it it is a collaborative planning session within the team that's going to execute the mission. Um, the difference is is when you agree to the plan, and that is the plan, and we, we don't even ask the question, is everybody on board? When we agree to it and we say, that's it, that's it. There is no deviation at all unless something on the battlefield changes. And, and in that moment, then I, I make the decisions and we exig- there's no time for arguing or debate, or I don't think that's a really good idea. Um, so, so timing is also a factor. Pre-planning, there's collaboration and coordination uh, and, and dis- discussion and argument. Once the plan is agreed upon, that's it. It's, it's final until something, an event occurs on the battlefield that forces it to change um uh if if somebody dissents from the plan um and it and it causes things to go poorly uh, we call that insubordination and it's it's punishable by jail time um you know we have in the military we have our own legal system it's called the uniform code of military justice uh and so uh commanders at all levels have a certain level of authority in the in the UCMJ process and at a lieutenant colonel's level I can put somebody in prison Uh, for insubordination certainly if it results in a in an injury or death corporate america and this is where that adaptive leadership comes in and that uh, kind of uh, ability to adapt to the situation you're right there's uh, you know the organization that i'm in is is intentionally a bit of a matrixed organization and that encourages discussion dissent constructive conflict Argument, whatever you want to call it, uh, every month there's another politically correct word uh, that comes out for it. Um, and so, uh, so the intent, I, I and I get the intent, and I agree with the intent of that. The intent of that is, uh, in my mind, if if there's three of us sitting at this table and we all have to agree on one plan, and we all three have a different idea of it, if the if we have to come away agreeing, it's going to be a better plan because we're going to have incorporated concerns and 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 desires of all three of us to get to the right point. We're all gonna have different priorities, see things from different perspectives uh, and things of that nature. Um, it can make it more challenging. Um, again, I think that HR plays a critical role. I mean, we've had intentional, uh, in, in the organization, I mean, we've had intentional um, conferences or meetings where we knew I mean, the topic that was thrown on the table was absolutely gonna cause everybody to boil over in constructive conflict. Uh, it was, it had to happen that way. Initially, they just let us fight it out. And it literally, the very first meeting, could have easily turned into a fist fight in the conference room. Um, the second meeting, our HR decided that she would babysit and, and supervise. So it was a much more controlled environment. and But you know, that first meeting was needed. It was needed to understand where everybody's position was, how strongly vested in their position they were, how flexible they were gonna be in being open-minded to other positions, and to see where the dissent was, where was the conflict. Once that was kind of identified and it was extraordinarily obvious, then it allowed uh, our HR representative to kind of engage in that and and moderate and and it really in the end, and this was six more iterations of this meeting. It really turned into such an amazingly effective con- conversation, where I think we came out of it a better organization. So sometimes you have to start at that really hard conflict level to get to a point of agreement, um, because you got to get rid of the emotion, right? Uh, a lot of the conflict comes from emotion and. And insecurities, maybe, uh, you know, I don't want to, I can't lose my responsibility. That's, I'm responsible for that. Don't touch my, don't get in my backyard. Right. Right. And sometimes you have to realize, you know what, I, I actually do trust that guy. It's okay for him to come in my backyard. Maybe we can do better together. And so it. I think that going through that process built trust um, in, in the organization and we came out of it stronger because of it. And it was needed.
0: It does. It takes a little bit of, it almost reminds me of jury duty as well. Mm, yes. Yeah, same. Um, where you have all of these different people from different backgrounds with different interests coming together. And it's a little bit almost team building. So like yeah. you said, you start out maybe a little bit defensive and moving towards agreement and trust.
2: Jury duty is such a great analogy. <laughs> it is.
0: Yeah, because that first couple minutes in the jury room. Is not always pretty
2: well you know when you see you see documentaries where they bring juries together about really high profile very controversial cases and when these jury members get back together it's like they're seeing family i mean they they grew together as a team yeah. through the process right so fire fire hardens the metal right um and so uh but you're right i mean forming a good team is a lot like jury duty
0: Kim could tell you the five stages of building a team. (laughs) (laughs) There's storming, there's norming.
1: All right, a couple more questions, Ken, and uh, then we'll let you off the hook here. What do you think is maybe the one or two top things that a veteran or a, um, well, veteran brings to corporate America?
2: Great question. Um, Why should but,
1: we hire so many veterans?
2: So, so again, and I, I've used this statement a couple times, but I will say adaptive leadership. Um, I think that corporate America does value leadership. I just don't think that they have somebody that, I, I don't think corporate America in and of itself, not including veteran employees, has ever had to lead in an environment like a veteran has had to lead in. Um, corporate America interviews, and they're very selective in who they choose to be employees. We don't. Uh, our recruiters are out there trying to make numbers, and, and you find so young soldiers in the military from extraordinarily diverse backgrounds, both from an education level, an intelligence level, a financial background level. You know, I've, had, I've had young enlisted soldiers that have master's degree degrees, and I've had young enlisted soldiers that have already, at the age of 18, spent three years in prison. Um, and, and have have a GED um, you have to put them on the same level and they both have to work together and they have to communicate well with each other S- and it could be in a combat environment um, where now their lives are in each other's hands so so that adaptive leadership and the ability to lead in a very intense environment um, is is something that can't be replicated in corporate America um, and then the other the other, Thing that I would say, and we've touched on this uh, already, also is the ability to make decisions. Um, There is no room in the military for a leader that cannot make a decision. You're for, I mean, it's just, it's not that you're taught it. It's and we do. We have a very intentional process called the military decision-making process that includes decision matrices and pros, cons, facts, assumptions, analysis, things of that nature. We don't use that often. That's in a big battle campaign that will go through an intentional process but it's so ingrained in our dna just make a decision that's your job to make decisions and lead soldiers um and so coming in and having somebody that can see things from a different perspective right and then make decisions or even ask the question why why do we do that um you know sometimes that can be extremely valuable uh, as well so adaptive leadership and decision making
1: final question hit me what do you want our listeners to take away from this?
2: You know, uh, I would love to see your listeners give a veteran a chance. Um, I think that you'd be shocked. Uh, you know, you you have to find the right job, I think, and you have to find the right level that fits their capability. Um, I wouldn't worry so much about what's on their resume and what they've done and what they haven't done and. I would, I would think more about the level of responsibility that they held in the military versus the level of responsibility in the role you're interviewing for. And if they're similar, that person will figure out what he has to do to be successful in your role. Um, if you require five years of, of experience and they only have two, but the responsibility level was the same, I would tell you, you probably won't find a better person. Give them a chance. I mean, in the military, we we allow our soldiers to figure it out. Um, and, and I don't know that we value that enough in corporate America, the ability to just figure it out, go and run and, and get it done. Um, so, so if I had to say, you know, the one thing I'd like people to take away is you know, a single veteran can change the dynamics of an organization um, through attitude, through leadership, through work ethic, um, and, and it can rally the whole team. Uh, really so
1: Yeah, I uh, completely agree in the the spirit of camaraderie uh, teamwork they get whereas sometimes coming right out of university as an entry-level job for example you don't always understand that mm-hmm. if you haven't been forced into that to, to accomplish something so
2: yeah great but,
1: okay so I think uh, we've exhausted all the questions we have for you. Hopefully it uh, wasn't too hard on you and not too much in the hot box or hot seat.
2: No, this has been awesome. Thank you.
1: So, Tammy,
0: how about we state the obvious? Yeah, let's do it. So here's a couple of key things, and, and Ken, go ahead and uh, correct me where I'm wrong, but here's the key things I think uh, to walk away from today with. Um, the planning process is key. It's not the plan. Uh, be ready to change the plan but it's the process that you go through learning and sharing and collaborating so you use that a lot too is is collaborating it builds a better plan has everybody on board and through that process we're building trust with each other Mm -hmm. the second thing is digging into the responsibilities so we talked a lot about you know that that transition and translating those skills and so dig into the responsibilities it's not about the job title and it's not about the specific tasks it's about the responsibilities and i think that's really key in corporate america we go after what job title did somebody have before but really understanding what those responsibilities are if it's similar in in level you're saying maybe similar in nature that uh these folks coming out of the military it's part of who they are now that they're going to figure out how to be successful in that role Mm -hmm. even if they don't have that necessarily that job title on their resume right um you said brotherhood exists in both corporate and the military and i think that's great because you know in the world of engagement as part of our culture and having um employees engaged they talk a lot about uh, all the surveys will say things like do you have a best friend at work and 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 these types of things and i so i think that is key that there is there is a brotherhood and it's developed through various things and you said you know a lot of times it comes out when people band together in crisis and you know, sometimes we're forced into crisis, like in that conference room. Um, other times, there's just you know, real world things that are happening that uh, that cause that crisis. Um, and then, lastly, and I put this one last uh, because it's about putting people first. And so, it was uh, a lot of things were very eye opening for me today. And, and one of the things that you said is in the military, yeah, there is a lot of structure and and it can be rigid, and there's certain things that are followed. But a lot of the great leaders have compassion. And I don't think that compassion is a word that we use with the military often. Um, and maybe sometimes even in corporate leadership, we don't use the word yeah. compassion very often. But um, while we might have corporate goals or department goals, uh, we can still achieve those by putting our people first, because it's our people that are going to help us get to achieving all of those goals. So um, so I I hope that's uh, a good reflection on the conversation today. and. And uh, putting out there, stating the obvious of what we learned. All right. So first and foremost, Ken, thank you very much for your time,
1: for your service. Um, Thanks to all the veterans out there. I greatly appreciate their service. Thanks to all of our listeners. And please stay tuned for our next episode of Cubicle Insanity.